You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co-founder. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays. For episode seven, we catch up with Alex Javorankov, CEO and founder at Insilico Medicine. Stay tuned to find out which partnerships are crucial for very early stages in learning and gaining experience in drug discovery. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's do a quick round of introductions. I'm Simon, co-founder and CEO of Vile. We're a next-generation CRO building dramatically faster and cheaper trials powered by technology. Alex, your reputation precedes you, but for the audience, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you started in Silico. So sure. My name is Alex Jovankov. I'm the CEO and founder of Insilico Medicine. Actually, I'm a co-CEO of Insilico, so we've got two CEOs. It's a long story. And before I started in Silico, I was in semiconductor industry, and uh, my background is in computer science. Around 2004, 2005, I decided to switch from semiconductors to biotech because I think that the most important challenge and problem in life is aging and age-associated diseases. So whatever I do is related in one way or another to aging research and addressing age-associated diseases. So I did my grad work at MSU, did my uh, grad work at Johns Hopkins, and I worked for a number of biotech companies, mostly related to aging research. And in 2013-2014, during the renaissance of deep learning, and the true revolution in deep learning, when deep learning systems started outperforming humans in image recognition, voice recognition, text recognition, I realized that my brains that are powering deep neural networks already had very substantial data sets cleaned up and ready for machine learning. And we started experimenting with those data sets, uh, utilizing deep learning techniques, uh, originally for target identification and then for generative chemistry. And in 2014, I started in Silico originally at the Emerging Technology Centers uh, on the campus of the Johns Hopkins University. Um, so moved to Baltimore for a while, and then we scaled globally. So now we are a truly global company with R&D centers in nine countries or regions spanning pretty much every time zone. So right now I'm calling from Shanghai, China. I know it's 1 a.m. and my next call is in 25 minutes. So we are trying to be omnipresent and trying to play in multiple areas of science technology, but also in many regions. It feels like we're in a moment right now. This is the computational bio moment. And there's a lot of contributing factors. I think people are talking about the kind of accessibility of machine learning and AI in general, just that this pace of advancements there. There's talk of just the scale of compute available with the cloud is enabling this new explosion in computational bio. There's also talk of it's the CROs, it's the preclinical CROs, whether it's Wuxi or others that are enabling this kind of innovation. Do you feel like this is the moment for computational bio? If so, why is that? What are the factors leading to this being the moment? So sure, I think that around 2014 to 2016, that was the true moment of uh, comp bio and comp chem utilizing new approaches, specifically deep learning, deep neural networks. And that's when the expertise in this field was very scarce. Nowadays, high school students are doing target discovery using deep neural networks. I can perform pretty much at the same level as uh, us in 2014. And today, many of the technologies that we've been developing around 2014, 2016 are now validated using experimental data. And some are even in human clinical trials 
So right now, it's the moment for the companies that started, again, around the time of the deep learning revolution and expanded into their own pipelines. So started utilizing these technologies to develop their own pipelines and validate it to the level where they could go human. So now those companies that achieved this point and also managed to fundraise successfully They are the major consolidators of the market because there are many startups out there that actually have reasonably good tech, but they don't have the level of validation that pharma needs in order to partner or investors need in order to invest. And we are right now at the moment of the massive consolidation of the industry. I think that right now it is pretty much like 2001 in the dot-com era where the bubble has burst, right? So you've got major collapse and the winter in the early stage startups. But the companies that managed to grow, they are growing very fast, right? Like we're um, coming more abundant. And right now it's really the time of growth. And of course, you are absolutely right. So the CROs are fueling this growth. So especially a company that managed to establish very fluid and very operationally effective way to collaborate with CROs. So you can actually distribute the workload between the many CROs and also parallelize and at the same time uh, achieve certain level of redundancy because as you may have one experimental result, another CRO may have another. And it's a very good idea to have redundancy and two exper- one experiment in two different labs to get higher confidence and also generate a little bit more data. And the availability of those CROs is allowing companies like ours, AI-powered drug discovery companies, to move much quicker and distribute the workloads geographically, but also within on multiple CROs that provide you with the level of infrastructure that you would not be able to achieve internally. And of course, the availability of data has increased and the availability of talent, as I've mentioned, and many of the algorithms that we've been developing in the early days have now been commoditized and some turned into ready-to-use software. For example, in Silica, in addition to our own drug discovery, we make the tools that we use internally available for the entire industry. So you can pick up on the Omics platform or a software as a service and start discovering novel targets using many different methods. We have integrated more than 60 drug discovery philosophies, target discovery philosophies on the tool. And it's reasonably inexpensive. You can put it on the credit card in Big Pharma. And Chemistry 42, uh, the system which allows you to very rapidly generate small molecules with the desired properties, it's also ubiquitously deployed. So every pharma with substantial expertise in AI has deployed uh, Chemistry 42 and are now using it as a tool, not for pilots, but now as a ready-to-use product. And the level of validation of those technologies has exceeded my wildest dreams when we just started uh, in silico, and of course, that allows us to grow and the entire industry to grow. So I think that, again, we're at the point of no return for some of the companies. We see the Googles and the Amazons and the Microsofts emerging out of this Cambrian explosion of small companies, and most likely those companies will continue to grow. Even though right now we're in biotech winter, so budgets are scarce, companies are going down, many companies are collapsing. But I think it could be uh, probably early 2024, end of 2023, we're going to see a major recovery in this industry. And again, comp bio companies that validated and managed to deliver 
clinical stage assets are going to be the motherships of this industry. I want to ask you about compound synthesis, the timelines, the process. Your synthesizability as a key parameter in, in a lot of small molecule drug discovery has been a key focus. Many people point to that as the part of the DMTA cycle that slows the drug discovery process is a key bottleneck. What's your sense of that statement? Is the compound synthesis timeline really the big bottleneck? And what are you excited about in terms of new approaches, whether it's automated synthesis or other approaches? So, of course, uh, synthesis as a service came available for many CROs. And also now we see very substantial level of automation in that area. And it really sped up the design uh, analyze cycles on DMTAs pretty dramatically. And also, I think synthesis has gone down in price slightly recently. And new algorithms, also we are developing some, and there are some algorithms available from other vendors. For example, Merck's uh, Synthia is pretty good, and many other technologies are available that allow you for pretty effective and efficient retrosynthesis planning. So you can plan the synthetic route more efficiently using AI. And with generative chemistry, you can use synthetic accessibility as a generation condition. So you can generate with synthetic accessibility in mind and afterward also filter out the molecules that are being generated using synthetic accessibility predictors. And then for those molecules that you prioritize, you can do synthetic crowd planning. And again, utilizing advanced CROs, you can very rapidly synthesize and test. So this bottleneck is becoming less of a bottleneck, and the cycles are becoming shorter But I think that the predominant reason, the primary reason why the cycles are also becoming shorter is that we don't need to synthesize as many molecules. So right now at Encilico, for the first cycle, when we're trying to identify hits, usually synthesize, uh, you know, reasonably potent may take maybe a couple months. And then the lead doctor would take you... uh, maybe two or three rounds of synthesis and test. And for every cycle, we would use 10, 15 molecules, sometimes a little bit more if it's target is difficult. And the cycle would take you about four weeks. That's including in vivo testing. So the speed has increased dramatically. And also the number of molecules that we synthesize has gone down per program. And nowadays, we even try not to focus on speed. We try to go after more interesting chemistry and more difficult targets. You've been quite successful in announcing several large partnerships with pharma companies, notably Pfizer and Sanofi. First, congratulations are in order. Really remarkable. Second, there are many computational biofounders who look to replicate that success working with pharma. What advice do you have for them on approaching partnering with pharma? Well, first of all, I think that those partnerships with pharma are very important in the very early stages for learning and gaining experience in drug discovery. So especially that's very important for computation-first AI-powered drug discovery companies that prioritize the algorithmic data over the drug discovery expertise. So for example, founders like myself, who predominantly specialized in AI and computational sciences and did not have drug discovery experiences before. So it took me five years before we really understood what pharma is. And maybe 50 to 70 pilots later, we realized that you also need to discover and develop yourself. And that's the best way to convince the pharmaceutical companies to work with you. So I think that my 
main advice is that if you can, to the level where that foreign pharmaceutical company to partner with you, come to you, not the other way around, because they need to solve a problem, not just run a pilot or uh, evaluate whether the technology works or not. If you have validated beyond any reasonable doubt, and you are on humans, and you have multiple other programs where you can show the data and demonstrate that you can go after very novel targets, very difficult targets, I'm you can discover those targets and also prosecute them with your own chemistry. And the chemistry looks novel and it works. So something that would be very impressive to medicinal computational chemists when they look at the resulting programs. So the level of validation that you need to achieve nowadays is much higher than what we needed five to seven years ago. So focus on validation and keep the patient in mind, right? So I think that you need to be ready to go all the way into humans and preferably go all the way into phase two, phase three yourself. Because at the end of the day, that's what we are here for. So we are here to deliver the drugs to the patients. And if your ultimate objective is to partner with pharma, well, you probably are there for a wrong reason. So if you are there just to make money or to prove the point or to publish a paper this is not the game that you need to be playing, right? I mean, a lot of people do that. But at the end of the day, our job is to get the drugs to the patients. And if you have this objective in mind and you are very committed to delivering a drug to the patient, you're likely to be much more successful. You are going to be much more careful in planning your program. You're going to be much more careful when making certain statements. And you're going to speak with pharma using their own language because many heads of the therapeutic area would also have this objective in mind. So their dream is also to get the drug into the patient. And when this objective is aligned and they know that they can trust you and you're validated, it's a marriage in heaven. So, yeah, I think that when the objectives of both companies are aligned and both of you are very committed to the ultimate outcome where you deliver the drug to the patient. This is much better than when you are partnering in the mode of a pilot and you are trying to prove the point that your technology works to pharma, right? And very often those pilots take a very long time and lead nowhere. So you might pass with flying colors, but the company will tell you, oh, great, so here is your little payment. And sorry, we have other strategic objectives. Happened to us 100 times, well, many times. And until we demonstrated that we can commit to the project and go all the way to clinic, we couldn't partner at scale. There are some startup companies that managed to partner on the PowerPoint. It's very similar to getting investments, right? So some people are just very successful in doing that, and they can get a couple of big names on their board, wine and dine, the right people at the top. But unless you are committed to get to the clinic with your own asset or with a partner's asset, and you know that you have this capability, I think that you are not going to survive in the long term. Because yes, you can make a big pharma deal, but if you cannot deliver, and also you cannot deliver on many projects in parallel, you're going to be dead. And that's what's happening right now with many AI-powered startups. So my advice is that validate and go yourself as far and demonstrate the pharma to the partner. InSilico is now a clinical stage company. Congratulations on moving your first asset into the clinic. At Vial, we think a lot about the pain points in clinical trials. I would imagine just as much as you think about the pain points in drug discovery, where do you see room for technology having an impact in clinical trials as it would impact the space as much as you've impacted drug discovery? So sure. 
I think that for companies of our type, where we also specialize in target discovery, it's much easier to plan the clinical pathway because we discover the targets from ground up and usually it comes with a biomarker. So when you utilize AI to discover targets, usually you actually start with a biomarker. So you try to figure out which group of patients has the least heterogeneity in terms of target importance, and you're looking for the target that is likely to significantly benefit that particular patient's population. So if you can clearly utilize this same biomarker that you used for discovery in the clinic, you are more likely to succeed. And also there are many approaches to de-risk your clinical trial and ensure that you deliver maximum benefit to the patient. So I think that the most important part when working with a clinical trial CRO is to ensure that they have the capabilities and they have the ability to utilize your biomarker for patient enrollment, for patient selection, and also for monitoring. And they can provide uh, really high-quality data and even maybe analyze it themselves in order to come up with the proper data package that will be convincing to the regulators uh, and increase the chance fully and benefiting the max ensuring that you are enrolling only those patients that are the most likely to respond. So I think that's where technology meets the clinic. And what we are doing at Encilica, we also have a tool called Inclinico, which predicts the outcomes of phase two to phase three transitions. So there we utilize massive amounts of preclinical data and also clinical study design and look at more mainly two scores. One is target choice score, and that's basically how relevant and implicated the target is in a disease and how heterogeneous is the target in the patient subpopulation. And the other score is the clinical study design score. So one is utilizing multiple AI engines predominantly trained on omics data, and the other one is a massive transformer deep neural net, which is utilizing predominantly text and other data types, but it's a transformer. And with those two tools, we can, and we always do, process every one of our internal programs and try to understand how to de-risk it from the perspective of phase two to phase three transition. So our main objective in the company is to actually pass phase two. Phase three is more tricky and usually it doesn't fail us often, but our objective is to ensure that phase two flies with flying colors, right? And to do that, you need to ensure that your target choice is right and you've got the biomarker to narrow down the population that is likely to respond. And also, you need to ensure that you have, of course, the chemistry that is world-class and is ultimately safe. Actually, for that purpose, where our three lead programs, they're addressing chronic diseases. So to do that, we need to ensure that the drug is fundamentally safe, right? Because people will be taking that for in the course of many years. And if you want to have a potentially blockbuster therapeutic, you need to ensure that it's safe and people can take it over long periods of time. So what we're looking for in a CRO part in terms of mindset and, of course, the capabilities and experience running clinical trials in very specific disease areas. So that's always key. I'm going to go to our last question, which is something you're very passionate about, which is the field of regenerative medicine and aging. You've made a large commitment to donate your life's earnings to the field. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the latest approaches using Yamanaka factors. There's now several companies in the space, Altos and many others. Many are now looking at small molecule-driven approaches after some recent fantastic work from some academic labs pointing to an approach that could be effective. 
What are you tracking? What's your sense of the promise of some of these technologies in general? This is something that the world is moving towards. It seems a focus on a novel approaches to regenerative medicine. Where would you rate at the state of research? How far from the do you think we might be? So sure, we are a big advocate of dual purpose therapeutics. So drugs that target a disease in the first place and also the fundamental mechanisms of aging. So one of the hallmarks or more than one of the hallmarks of aging. And when we prioritize pro internal programs at Encilico, we, of course, also are trying to find those therapeutics that have this dual purpose. So we target the age-related disease. So, for example, our lead program is an anti-fibrotic drug that was partly derived utilizing aging research and deep neural networks that are trained to predict human age, human biological age but also are very implicated in multiple fibrotic processes. So we're looking for master regulators of fibrosis and the targets that are implicated in aging. And the first program is already in phase one human clinical trials for lung fibrosis, but we also achieved preclinical candidate stage uh, in kidney fibrosis with the same target and are almost about to achieve preclinical candidate in skin fibrosis. So it worked uh, in pretty much every assay that we tested it in. And my bet is, again, on those dual-purpose therapeutics. We published a research paper recently where we highlighted over 140 targets that are likely to have dual-purpose, structured them by novelty, confidence, and drugability, and commercial tractability. So we can take this paper on dual-purpose therapeutics and form a bunch of companies from this paper. We also published multiple other papers in ALS, in certain cancers, where targets have dual purpose, and we've validated all the way to uh, animal models and then put it out in the open. I think that the stage of longevity pharmacology, the state of longevity pharmacology is pretty advanced, but we are still in the early days. So we're, this industry is definitely going to explode because this is the best way to discover potentially blockbuster therapeutics that maximize benefit for the patient. Again, in our case, our fundamental value in the company is patient first. So we want to ensure we maximize patient benefit. And if you are targeting aging and disease at the same time, even if the target is not number one most important target in a specific disease, usually it's not the same target is if you're really hitting the number one most important target. So in many diseases, it will be exactly that, right? So you are going to, to maximize patient benefit due to an off-target effect that is also targeting aging. My thoughts on reprogramming, I think that it's very promising technology, but it's very early days. And there are many reasons to believe that it's not going to work. So we should wait and see. It most likely will work in certain diseases, for example, many ocular diseases, age-associated ocular diseases are likely to uh, be very treatable with reprogramming. Multiple diseases of the skin and diseases that where partial reprogramming would probably be constrained to a specific tissue, preferably the tissue that you can also easily access and monitor. But on a systemic level, I don't believe complete or partial reprogramming is going to work, primarily because there are many sources of damage that accumulate during aging and 
some of those sources of damage are not controllable using pharmacological means. Like, for example, if you open up a 70-year-old on the uh, operating table and feel the aorta, it will be much less elastic than the young person's aorta. And if you let it dry, it will be like an egg because the tissue has mineralized, it's calcified, and there are many advanced glycation end products. So for stem cells to move in, it's very difficult. So any kind of tissue recycling is constrained. For the cells to find the right niche, it's also very difficult. There is a lot of fibrotic tissue. So if you think even fibrotics are hard in this ultra-calcified microenvironment and the, the extracellular matrix is already very stiff, your problem is taken, right? So it's not going to give you huge benefit. So we need to look at maybe organ replacement as the next frontier in regenerative medicine. And I think that that would probably give you the maximum longevity dividend. But from pharmacological approaches, I would focus on dual-purpose therapeutics, regardless of whether they are focused on reprogramming or if it's analytics. If you are trying to target the senescent cells, those old cells that just sit there and do nothing and excrete toxins in the microenvironment, or if you are addressing fibrosis, again, that's my favorite, because I think that you can really gain maximum benefit if you're addressing fibrosis as a disease or the biological process driving multiple diseases. Also, if you look at stem cell exhaustion, telomere attrition, epigenetic drift, and many others, right? So there are many areas that we can go after. I think that we need to demonstrate that low-hanging fruit first and show that you can achieve a blockbuster therapeutic by targeting aging and disease at the same time. And afterward, once you have the resources to move forward, you can explore other methods. Again, bullish on reprogramming, but also very conservative and cautious. I think that one of our really cool tools that we are developing is a fully robotic AI-driven laboratory that is able to capture a lot of data from the sample. So any sample that goes in, I'm not going to talk about which sample it's going to be. We will be able to work with multiple different sample types, but we'll get deep phenotyping data from the sample and afterward the transcriptional methylation response and also molecules relate um, pretty substantial transcriptomics. So those data types will be able to actually even help us identify those reprogramming candidates more efficiently, right, and design some of them from scratch. But that's not the primary goal, right? So we, of course, want to look at the targets that are coming from epigenetic data and combination of epigenetic and transcriptomic data. Fantastic. Well, with that, Alex, thank you for the time and appreciate you taking the time of your day for this conversation. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google 